This is the Talk of Iowa Book Club from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. We've been reading The Absolutely True Diary of a Part-Time Indian by Sherman Alexie. It's a young adult novel that came out in 2007. It won the National Book Award and quickly became a staple in English classes, middle schools all over the country. It is also one of the most frequently challenged or banned books in America. It's the story of Arnold Spirit Jr., known to everybody on the Spokane Indian Reservation where he lives, as Junior. Junior is smart, funny, and a budding cartoonist, but he has some serious challenges, challenges that make him a target for bullies of all kinds. He was born with hydrocephalus, more commonly known as water on the brain. And here's author Sherman Alexie reading a short excerpt from the book as Junior is describing himself. My brain damage left me nearsighted in one eye and farsighted in the other, so my ugly glasses were all lopsided because my eyes were so lopsided. I get headaches because my eyes are like enemies, you know, like they used to be married to each other, but now hate each other's guts. And I started wearing glasses when I was three, so I ran around the res looking like a three-year-old Indian grandpa. And oh, I was skinny. I turned sideways and disappear. But my hands and feet were huge. My feet were a size 11 in third grade. With my big feet and pencil body, I looked like a capital L walking down the road. That is Sherman Alexie reading from the Absolutely True Diary of a Part-Time Indian in a 2007 interview on NPR's Morning Edition. At the beginning of the book, Junior realizes that he is not going to get what he wants from an education at the underfunded school on the reservation. He decides to go to the all-white high school in a nearby town. There, he faces racism, makes some quirky friends, and then, after becoming a star on the basketball team, really starts to thrive. His friends and many family members on the reservation feel like he has betrayed them, and he deals with incredible challenges in his personal life, poverty, an alcoholic father, and the deaths of three people he loves very much. The book is semi-autobiographical, and Sherman Alexie once said in an interview that it's about 78% true. Alexie published a memoir in 2017 and describes many of the events that inspired this fictional story. This hour, I'm going to talk about this book with three expert readers. First up is Christina Roberts, director of the Indigenous Peoples Institute, associate professor in English, and in women, gender, and sexuality studies at Seattle University and an enrolled member of the Fort Belknap Indian community. Hello, Christina. Good morning. It's so wonderful to be with you this morning. Well, thank you so much for being here. And tell me about when you first encountered this book. Well, I had and am a fan of Alexi's work for the most of my life. He was the one Native writer that I knew about. I had not encountered Native literatures when I was in school until I went to college and took a Native American literature course. So when I heard that he was going to be publishing this young adult novel, I couldn't wait to get my hands on it. And so I read it as soon as it came out. And do you remember what your reaction was when you read it? Yeah, and it's it's one of those things where um, sometimes, you know, I think we have these incredible hopes and expectations and, you know, putting folks on a pedestal is never a fair way to approach someone. But at the same time, when I first read it and, and was so um, just in love with the characters and what was portrayed, I also found myself having mixed emotions because of what I felt could be 
a dangerous way that some folks might then see Native peoples or think about reservation life. So I was holding on to this tension. I was laughing. I was crying. I was, you know, just feeling so much for Junior and his experiences. And I couldn't help but think about what the audience and especially the non-Native readers might be taking away from the book. So it was intense. (laughs) Obviously, quite an emotional (laughs) journey. Um, Let's talk a little bit more about that, because there are some really, really tough topics in the book. Junior, as I mentioned, is dealing with with really some incredible challenges in his life. Those big challenges are almost universally based on Sherman Alexie's life and his experiences growing up. But they also dovetail with some commonly held stereotypes and, in many cases, misconceptions about Native people. Exactly, exactly. And this is something that I've heard Sherman talk about in other venues. Um, Some scholars not too long ago were um, criticizing his work for its representations of Native life. And I remember very vividly at a conference one time hearing him passionately and emotionally coming from this space of my life is not a stereotype. And so it's one of those pieces where, again, we're, we're facing an industry, you know, publishing a larger society that is consuming certain narratives. And when the larger society is consuming narratives that are reinforcing stereotypes, there's a conversation that we have to have about, well, what about the other aspects of reservation life that aren't making it more into the quote-unquote mainstream society? So for me, it was one of those opportunities, and that's why I taught the book in, in a few classes, is one of those opportunities like, let's really wrestle with some of what is emerging here because we have to hold on to the fact that here's this author telling us that, again, as you, as was mentioned earlier, 75, 78% of it is true. And then reading his memoir later, recognizing how he took those moments, those painful, difficult moments in his life and in his experiences and translated them into this young adult piece so that other young people who might be facing bullying or might be an outlier for whatever reasons aren't going to necessarily feel alone or rejected when that is, there are people who are having those experiences. So again, it's just, for me, it's about that tension. And I find that tension to be something that we need to lean into and have conversations about rather than trying to fix, quote unquote, you know, these ideas that people might have. And it is a coming of age novel. And I think that's one of the reasons that has been so popular in middle school curricula. I I will say that I talked to a principal of a school where it was taught a few years ago. My daughter actually read it in one of her classes and really loved it when she was in. Now, I can't remember if it was seventh or eighth grade, but he said that when the teacher said that they were going to read it, he's like, that sounds great. And he didn't actually realize before that that it was so often challenged and so often banned. And he got a lot of phone calls and, you know, dealt with the phone calls and and he was comfortable Mm -hmm. with that. But he also said this book was such an extraordinary experience to, to see it taught because there were junior high boys standing in the hallway talking about a book that they were reading. And he said, I've never seen that before. I may never see that again. But that's powerful. So, I mean, I I can imagine 
reading it as a native person is a powerful experience in in one sense. Just reading it as a teenager is a powerful experience mm-hmm. for for any teenager that that empathizes. Exactly, exactly, and especially you know at a time in your life when things are confusing and your body's changing and people are, you know, figuring out who they are in this life and to have a space and especially a space that, you know, you're having an intimate experience with this book. It's something that, you know, you're having your own thoughts and your own experiences. And I um, want to share too, just like you did that I was raising my cousin and she just had her 29th birthday yesterday. Um, I was raising my cousin at the time and she was right around 14, 15 when we read the book. And for her, her. It was, an, again, another one of those experiences, like you said, she was never a fan of reading and it didn't gravitate towards books like I did. But when she picked up that book, she read it cover to cover and wanted to talk about the characters and really felt for the first time that she saw aspects of her life represented in a book that many people were talking about. Yeah, what a powerful experience. The um, You mentioned that Sherman Alexie was one of the first Native authors that, that you were really familiar with and, and that that was exciting to you. There have been a lot of incredible books published by Native authors, and it feels like in young adult literature right now, there's really an explosion of incredible work by, by Native authors. Where do you feel like this book fits in, in, in the canon of literature? Oh, my goodness. That is such a a powerful question to to think through. And I hold it in very high regard still and and will continue to do so. Um, It's one of those moments where I recognize, like I said, all of the cultural forces, you know, the the forces of the market that are at play in, in terms of, you know, receiving awards and at the same time, I, I hold it in high regard. I also struggle with the fact that its visibility and its recognition risks erasing or at least you know pushing to the margins all of the other incredible works that have been written. And I'm thinking in particular by Native women. And you know why aren't there the same conversations happening? And why isn't there the same recognition taking place of, of those voices? So. From my perspective, you know, I, I, again, I, I think a lot about tensions, obviously, I've mentioned it a few times, but it's one of those moments where, yes, this is an incredible work, and it is in the canon, especially, you know, I want to recognize it in Native literature and young adult literatures, and let's also have conversation about all of the incredible work taking place. Louise Erdrich, Sherry Demily, uh, I could go on and on just in terms of Jeanette Armstrong, you know, these incredible writers who are also representing facets of young adult life and the complexity of what it means to be Native, not only in present day, but in the past, and even thinking about Indigenous futurity and, and how do we write ourselves into the future. We also know that there is tension surrounding Sherman Alexie. Back in 2018, there were credible allegations of sexual misconduct, not illegal sexual activity, not violent sexual activity, but misconduct. And um, I, I know that that has 
complicated a lot of people's feelings. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that later on. Um, We're going to take a short break here, but we're going to talk a great deal more about this important book. I'm talking right now with Christina Roberts, director of the Indigenous Peoples Institute, associate professor in English and in Women, Gender, and Sexuality Studies at Seattle University, also an enrolled member of the Fort Belknap Indian community. Coming up in a couple of minutes, we'll talk with our other two expert readers, Leah Slick Driscoll is a social studies teacher at the Meskwaki Settlement School and an enrolled member of the Meskwaki Nation, a descendant of the Winnebago tribe of Nebraska as well. Lance Foster will be here, archaeologist, author, artist, and vice chairman of the Iowa tribe of Kansas and Nebraska. We are talking about the absolutely true diary of a part-time Indian by Sherman Alexie. This is the Talk of Iowa Book Club. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. This is the Talk of Iowa Book Club from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. We have been reading The Absolutely True Diary of a Part-Time Indian by Sherman Alexie. Published in 2007, it won the National Book Award for Young People's Literature. It's also one of the most challenged or banned books in America. And when we asked our listeners what banned book they wanted to read, they voted for this one. We also read The Hate You Give because there was a tie in that poll. This book tells the story of Arnold Spirit Jr., a teenage boy growing up on the Spokane Indian Reservation. He wants to go to college and doesn't believe he'll get there if he stays at the underfunded school on the reservation. He decides to go to an all-white public high school in a nearby town, and his life is a struggle at home and at school, but he is smart funny and thankfully good at basketball. That helps him out a lot. And the book is as smart, funny, and hopeful as it is heartbreaking. With me right now is Christina Roberts, director of the Indigenous Peoples Institute and associate professor in English and in Women, Gender, and Sexuality Studies at Seattle University, also an enrolled member of the Fort Belknap Indian community. And we're going to bring our other expert readers into the conversation now, too. Leah Slick Driscoll is a social studies teacher at the Meskwaki Settlement School and an enrolled member of the Meskwaki Nation, also a descendant of the Winnebago tribe of Nebraska. Hello, Leah. Hello. Thank you so much for asking me to be a part of this conversation. Well, I so appreciate your willingness. And when did you first encounter this book? I first encountered this book, um, I would say, two years after it was um, published. Uh, My first year that I taught here at Meskwaki was 2009, and the middle school um, English teacher and I, you know, at that point talked about which one of us would be best to teach this book. Um, At that point, I taught the book in social studies within our modern American history um, course. I usually try to read one to two books in our history course that really add to the content of what we're learning. And, you know, I'm not sure um, if you mentioned, but Meskwaki Settlement School is an all Native American school. So our curriculum is centered, you know, we're centered in Native history. And then 
um, we branch out. And of course, we talk about all Americans. Um, but, you know, we have a luxury that a lot of schools wouldn't have, you know, for Native students, and that is to center the novels that we read um, on, you know, Native Native novelists and um, artists. So, you know, we don't have to, you know, make painful choices about which one or two books are we going to read about Native people. Um, of course, we read books about other groups of people as well. But, you know, we get to read um, amazing books like Firekeeper's Daughter by Angeline Bouley or The Marrow Thieves um, by Sherry Dimeline. And, you know, we don't we don't have to make those types of choices. Uh, as Christine was talking, I was thinking, you know, I had the exact same reaction upon reading this ahead of my students and then with my students um, that my students, they don't they don't come with these stereotypes about natives because they are native people themselves. Mm -hmm. so that's kind of a luxury that we have at our school. I don't have to um, try to counter the stereotypes that a non-native student body or audience might have, you know, if they don't have a lot of interactions with Native people, they might be getting their information about Natives from media sources or John Wayne movies or who knows. Um, my students, you know, they're, they're living their lives here in our Native community. So, you know, we talk about um, these issues and not every, not every student here would, would recognize this story, but they probably have a friend or a loved one who is going through um, similar things that Arnold. Um, would be going through. So I would echo Christine's um, statement that the reason that the book was so powerful to us is because we had at that point so few authors that were writing um, a valid and what felt like a true story um, that we, whether that is the amazing community aspect, the tight-knit community or whether that is the painful side of things where some of my students may have, just like in any school, some of my students may have family members that struggle with addiction or, you know, painful traumas in their life that um, we as a school or we as a community have to support each other and help each other through. When you first sat down and, and read the book. And I know that you you reread it for us. So maybe that one's the 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 reading session that is most present in your mind. But tell me a little bit. I mean, Christina and I were talking about what an intense read it was for her. How about for you? What was the experience like of reading the book? Uh, I would absolutely agree that like in the same two minutes, you could have tears in your eyes and you could also be laughing out loud. Um, it was almost like Alexi's way of dealing with intense moments of trauma would lead him into ways of trying to diffuse that intense, you know, where, where you may actually outright cry, you know, yeah. and, and making irreverent jokes. And, and that's kind of like a, a part of Native culture or Native community, you know, addressing maybe painful episodes with, with humor. So I would say it was also a very intense up and down emotional roller coaster to read it. And it, and it was the same for my students. I, I could see that as my students were reading and getting ready to talk in small groups, there would be people with tears in their eyes or there would be people laughing out loud. Um, so they were having, you know, that exact same experience of recognizing um, parts parts of ourselves and parts of our community in the story, even if it wasn't their own personal experience, 
and if it was their own personal experience, you know, it was, it was something that they felt um, connected to in a way that maybe they hadn't found a book that was this honest and this out there with, you know, with truths, maybe in some cases. I'm talking with Leah Slick Driscoll, and I want to bring our other expert reader into the conversation as well. And Christina and Leah, you both had read the book before. I always love to get a reader on the show who's encountering a work for the first time. And Lance Foster is that guy today. Lance Foster is an archaeologist, author, and artist, and vice chairman of the Iowa tribe of Kansas and Nebraska. Hello, Lance. Hey, how's it going, Charity? Good. Thank you so much for being here. And thank you for picking this book up for this conversation. So this was your first time reading it. Tell me what your first impression is. Yeah, totally first time. I mean, I'm an old guy, you know, I just turned 62. So I remember, you know, reading things as a little kid, as a person, kind of go through that. In my time, it was Catcher in the Rye and all that. But I know this book would have really meant a lot to me, especially because it had kind of a special aspect of including illustrations in there. You know, a lot of young people connect to the kind of graphic novels and stuff. And I think I read in there also, Alexia talked about, he wanted to do some of that. So he had found somebody who, it's almost like a sidebar or a a box that explicate kind of different aspects of what the story he's telling, the narrative of of Junior. But then kind of these sidebars kind of exploring different ideas that were going through junior's mind because he's the artist you know he's a he's a geeky kid i was a total geeky kid i'd stare out the window drawing all the time too so as an artist you know i really connected to that side i never could figure out if i just wanted to write or do art and he found a, a book that could do both but wouldn't conflict you know it wasn't like only graphic novel or only you know narrative novel and text so i thought that was really cool i would have really liked it when i was that age um i'm sure myself um, I, I'm, uh, a lot of Indian people aren't on reservations. Just like the ladies had said, we have a spectrum of experiences, some, some very positive, some very negative, and most of us have a mix, you know? So for me, I was raised in Montana, far away from my people. Our reservations here, I'm sitting up near our cemetery. In fact, it's where I could get a signal here. And, uh, for me, I was raised in Montana, far away from us. My parents had, my grandparents had left here. Because in the 30s, there was no land. Allotment had pretty much wiped out most of our land. 90% of our land was, it was alienated. So there was nowhere where to be here. There was, we, our reservation is pretty small here. So they moved out to California and worked out there in shipyards and everything. And then um, my parents met out there. My dad's um, the Iowa and my mom was non-Indian, although she has some trace, whatever. But... Anyway, they moved up to Montana, and that's where I connected with the Indian community, Northern Cheyenne, Blackfeet. I went to UM, went to IAIA down in Santa Fe. So that was my experience. I was more like an urban Indian kid. You know, um, up in Helena, the, the dominant group there is Landless Chippewa Cree. And so those are the kids that I knew in my school growing up. And it was a mixed school. It wasn't all white or all Indian, you know, but the Indians weren't treated well and Back in the 60s, there was a lot of poverty. A lot of programs hadn't come through. And because they didn't have federal recognition, they didn't have access to a lot of the programs. So there were some nice sites, steak, some nice sites, peanut butter. You know, we got a, a, a wide range of experiences. So I came to it more from an urban Indian rather than a res Indian perspective. But I just want to say, I do think um, 
you know, a younger person really would connect. And I, I was delighted. It was a good read. It was a fun read. And I understand the concerns that people have of it being a stereotype and what non-Indians are going to bring to it. I guess for me, you know, coming from a, that other older generation, um, I was during that period then when there was a lot more despair. And I think Alexi's a few years younger than me. So um, I've never been to the Spokane Reservation, but I've been to several reservations in Montana. And, and sometimes they're pretty hard, you know, and I, I knew a lot of kids that did go through a lot. So I'm just thinking things may be a little better now, I, I hope. But I think he was validly talking about his own experience as much as I could tell, but I didn't know the man, and this is the first time I read it. Yeah. So when you think about what it might have been like for you as a 14-year-old native boy to pick up this book, what do you think that would have meant to you? It would have been, man, I wish I was better at basketball. (laughs) Um, He he found his way that way. All I had was my drawing, and then I'd go with my family off to go hunting, and I was a pretty good shot, but but I, I was lousy at layups. I was a, I would always travel with double dribble. I sucked <laughs> at it. So I was like, man, that kid has a winner. That kid is a winner is what I'd be saying. <laughs> well, it, it, and that, again, that's one of those things that was inspired by, uh, by Sherman Alexie's life. Uh, so it wasn't, wasn't just a, a um, fictional dream that Arnold also no. became a basketball star. But, <laughs> <laughs> but it would, you know, do you remember, Lance, do you remember the first time that you picked up a piece of literature and really saw yourself in it? Oh, yeah. For me, I, I remember uh, earlier that um, we were talking about there's not, you know, the Sherman Alexi being male. My first really memorable Indian book written was by a, a woman. It was by um, uh, Leslie Marmon Silco, and it was the book Ceremony I read in my early 20s. Um, back in the, back in my teens, all there was, was like black elk speaks and that kind of thing. There wasn't really any kind of fictionalized thing for young people. There's mythology and that kind of thing. But the first novel that, and I still read it once in a while, is Leslie Marmon's Silco Ceremony. And then, um, I want to shout out to one of our relatives, Annalie Walters and her favorite, my favorite one of hers that nobody hardly ever reads is Ghost Singer. And it touches on some of the work that I do as a historic preservation officer, some of this the spiritual aspects uh, and stuff. So those two people, you know, te- check them out. Leslie Marmon Silco and Annalie Walters too, because there's some very fine um, writers out there. At, I hardly ever read fiction anymore. So this was a good opportunity to get, to get to do that. Uh, well, thank, thanks for doing it for us. And I, I'm so glad you enjoyed it so much. And I, I do want to talk about the, the fact that um, Sherman Alexi has these allegations in his history. You know, there are people who say, okay, maybe we shouldn't read Sherman Alexie books anymore because there are credible allegations of sexual misconduct. And um, again, I want to mention that that these are not allegations of uh, violent acts or illegal acts, but they are allegations that he used his power and position and really hurt a number of Native women in these relationships. And 
I can imagine, Christina, that when those allegations came out, they were incredibly painful. I know that that you actually were working with Sherman Alexie. And how do you how do you think about what we know and and the literature that we have? Uh, I have so many um, heart thoughts that I want to share about it. And the best way that I can share with you all and, and with listeners is, you know, thinking about the fact that our relatives shouldn't be disposable. And I come from, you know, as many of us do, whose families have experienced historical trauma, intergenerational trauma, you know, cultural and literal genocide, that there are many wounds that get passed along um, within our families and some of them stemming from residential, you know, boarding schools. And when I think about what happens when somebody makes a mistake, when a relative hurts another relative, how do we respond? And given the way that, you know, dominant culture and, you know, thinking about justice and those kind of conceptions, so much of it has been taken out of communities and families and has been placed into these systems, you know, that are supposed to be quote unquote objective. But when it comes to having a relationship with someone, seeing how much, you know, that person that you love and care about and you have in your life to then know that that person has hurt somebody else. I could say the same thing about my uncles. I could say the same thing about, you know, some of my aunties and my relatives who have done the harm. And so when I approached it, when it first came out, I, I approached it from this place of, this is terrible. I am heartbroken. I shed tears. I cried. I raged. I so want to have, you know, relatives who aren't hurting one another. But at the same time, I also wanted to hold on to the fact that it isn't then about throwing people away. And when I look at some of the ways that, you know, mainstream society, again, like bigger picture pieces in this country, you know, folks are hurting. A lot of times it's because they're being tossed away by their families because, They've made a mistake because they have substance abuse issues, because they have mental health disorders. And we need, from my perspective, to be reminded that, you know, these are our relatives and relatives make mistakes just like we do. And I hope that we can hold that with one another and find ways to move through it together and make sure that, again, that pain, we're not hurting one another anymore. We are going to take another short break. We'll be back in just a moment. We are talking about The Absolutely True Diary of a Part-Time Indian by Sherman Alexie, published in 2007, winner of the National Book Award for Young People's Literature, also one of the most banned or challenged books in America. With me, Christina Roberts of Seattle University, also an enrolled member of the Fort Belknap Indian community. Leah Slick Driscoll is here, a social studies teacher at the Meskwaki Settlement School and an enrolled member of the Meskwaki Nation and descendant of the Winnebago tribe of Nebraska. Lance Foster is also here, author and artist, vice chairman of the Iowa tribe of Kansas and Nebraska. We'll continue in a moment. This is the Talk of Iowa Book Club. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. 
It's the Talk of Iowa Book Club from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. We have been reading The Absolutely True Diary of a Part-Time Indian by Sherman Alexie, published in 2007, winner of the National Book Award for Young People's Literature, one of the most challenged or banned books in America. And Talk of Iowa listeners voted for it when we asked, which banned book do you want to read? So uh, we are reading this book. We also last month read The Hate You Give by Angie Thomas, another book frequently challenged and banned. This book, The Absolutely True Diary of a Part-Time Indian, tells the story of a young man who's growing up on the Spokane Indian Reservation. He has a lot of challenges in his life, including being terribly bullied at school. He decides that he wants to chart a new course for his future, and he leaves the underfunded school on his reservation. He goes to school in a nearby town. And the book is all about his journey through life. It's also a semi-autobiographical book, shares a lot of things in common with Sherman Alexie's childhood and life. With me talking about this book today, Christina Roberts, Director of the Indigenous Peoples Institute and Associate Professor in English and in Women, Gender and Sexuality Studies at Seattle University and an enrolled member of the Fort Belknap Indian Community. Leah Slick Driscoll is here, a social studies teacher at the Meskwaki Settlement School and an enrolled member of the Meskwaki Nation and a descendant of the Winnebago Tribe of Nebraska. Lance Foster is also here archaeologist, author, and artist, and vice chairman of the Iowa Tribe of Kansas and Nebraska. And I I just, I want to dive into the book. As I mentioned before, this is a coming-of-age novel, so it shares a lot of things in common with some of our greatest novels. We love coming-of-age novels, and we also know that, you know, for young people, reading these books is an incredible experience in empathy and identification. And Junior or Arnold really explores his identity in this book. He is talking to us as the reader about his identity as a native person, as an his part of his family, as a student, all of these different things. And he also really struggles with a sense of belonging. Lance, in, in thinking about Arnold's identity and and the struggles that he has in the novel, what what was your reaction? You know, it's interesting because his identity comes from a very solid place. He starts out knowing who he is as a Spokane person and his family and everybody knows each other's business and what name their dogs are and their shoe size and all that. So he comes from a very solid background. And then all of a sudden he's trying to figure out, you know, this is not where I want to go with myself in my life. And so he kind of bumps up against all the expectations of his community, you know, trying to trying to decide, hey, he wants to try this other school that has better records of success and more chances and all this. And, and then he gets thrown back all this blowback from, from people who don't like that, who thinks he's betraying them. And so he's coming from that place. He's coming from that place of having security in a sense of who he was, even though as an individual he had health challenges. But he's coming from that place. And then he's butting up against all these conflicts, right? Well, a lot of Indian people that I know, this whole spectrum of Indian experience, and that's one thing we can kind of address as far as some of the concerns about stereotypes, there is a spectrum. I mean, there's kids who are Indian raised in totally non-Indian situations, um, have been for a long time, and people who are adopted out and trying to figure out where they belong and everything. So I think that, in a way, Arnold has an advantage because he knows who he is, and at the same time, you know, he's getting most of the flack from outside himself as a little bit internal, 
this most of the internal is coming from what people are saying to him and, and hitting him with and stuff and trying to hide his poverty and stuff like that. But um, I think there's a lot of people out there that have an even shakier. I certainly did trying to figure out here's I'm Iowa in the middle of Montana. Nobody even heard of me. They say, what's a, what's an Iowa? Do you mean a Kiowa? And I'm like, you know, so, and then being lighter myself, I try to grow braids. And I ended up Willie Nelson's look better than mine. But <laughs> thing is, is that, you know, everybody's trying to figure themselves out, especially at that age. And I think even the non-ending kids, that's probably part of what they were responding to. The combination of not just the story of this kid trying to figure out what they're going to do with their lives, you know, and how the people are trying to drag them back sometimes. Yeah. Well, I mean, as a as a non-native reader, I will say that I, I really felt like um, Junior's identity with his tribe and and there was just, you know, some some really beautiful writing about how he felt that connection. His grandmother was such an extraordinary woman. And and he really clearly, although he was dealing with this rejection from a lot of people uh, in his community, or at least the sense of betrayal from those people in his community. He obviously really, really loved that this was part of his identity. Christina, do you have anything you want to add? Oh, just that I was thinking about how Alexi as an adult to giving voice to his younger self, because I think, you know, one of the things that I've, I've appreciated about getting older and loving, you know, coming of age novels is you can then, in that fictionalized experience, you know, you're going through all of those challenges and those obstacles with a character. But as an adult, being able for, you know, Sherman to give voice to his younger self and just thinking about how powerful and healing that can be, I would never want to go back to middle school for anything because it was such a horrific time in my life, you know, for reasons Lance said in terms of my own identity, being urban raised in Western Washington, far away from my family in Montana, and recognizing how horrible those experiences were. But now from this vantage point to be able to go back and to not explain so much as to just give voice to that young person who was struggling. And that's part of what I think is just incredible. I mean, his humor and the ways in which um, in navigating all of those different factors of life at that pla- at that time and place, it's just a very powerful character development from, you know, a vantage point that I think is potentially very healing. Well, and he does have all these challenges on the reservation, but Lance was talking about really that sense of community on the reservation. And it sounds a lot like a lot of small towns where everybody knows everybody's business, but there's, you know, that can be bad, but that can also be really good and give you an incredible sense of community. And Leah, you, you read this with students living in a Native community. Was that part of what they recognized? recognized in the book, that really strong sense of community? Yes, and I would say it is similar to a small community, but it's a much deeper level um, because your Native community is a group of people that out of the entire world, you know, they have the same history, um, the same language, uh, a culture that connects you. And, you know, uh, one reality that the book did really talk about, um, but that, you know, I see as a teacher is that the level, the connection 
um, and the strength of that community is such that it's really hard for, you know, a Native student who grew up in their community to just leave and go off to a huge university and be the only Native person in a class of, you know, 200 people day after day and have, you know, stereotyped representations of, um, you know, see constant stereotyped representations, even in college textbooks, um, and what's being discussed by professors, it, it, that, that level of alienation after having such a tight-knit community and support system um, is, is pretty devastating for young 18-year-old students. And so sometimes what we see is students coming back and then, um, and then starting back up with school after a few years. Uh, of you know maturing and saying okay I'm ready for this now and sometimes of course we have students that finish it out but for me um, when I as a teacher teaching at a native school the worst moment of the book for me was when Mr. P sat down next to him and said that his only hope to like reach his dreams or become a better person was to leave this hopeless place. So that actually really made me mad. Yeah. Well, and then that was, that was this white teacher, his math teacher. And I I felt like, and Leah, I want to hear your thoughts on this, particularly because you are a teacher. You know, we know that the schools that were on Indian reservations were not well-funded, were not designed to help students succeed. In fact, a lot of the schools were designed to try to remove children from their community and and from their heritage. I mean, we know about the residential schools, but also these schools on reservations also were trying to take the Indian out of the kids. So there was, I mean, there's incredible trauma there. And I feel like uh, Alexi is is hearkening to that. Thank goodness you're in a school that is not like that. But that must bring up so many complicated emotions for you. Right. Well, research done with at with at risk Native youth, um, there have been 14 major research projects done, and the conclusion of all of those research projects done by various you know various professors and researchers is that the more connection that a Native youth has to their culture, their language, and their religion the more likely they are to not only start college, but graduate from college. And then, of course, the support systems that the university has. And so when I think to myself, you know, we we have a very unique situation here in Iowa. We're not a reservation. Our people were removed in the 1840s, came back in 1857 and purchased our land Um, They tried to create a boarding school here in Iowa. They built one in Toledo, about five miles away from the settlement, and attempted to force our students to go, but the tribe took them to court and won in court the right to keep our children here on the settlement because we saw what happened when other tribes were forced to send their children to boarding school. And so the Bureau of Indian Affairs of Indian Affairs ended up building a day school here on the settlement. And even still in that day school with non-Native teachers, they attempted um, beginning in 1930 and on to um, assimilate our children to, you know, their worldviews and perspectives instead of having the education centered on 
um, Meskwaki life and Meskwaki worldviews and Meskwaki, you know, topics, history, subjects. And so um, in 2009, we actually built our brand new high school here. And the mission statement of the school is, you know, to have Meskwaki culture, language at the center. So when I think of my own children, you know, I'm the mother, I'm a mother of seven and all of my children have, have come to this school. Um, that moment, you know, I, I understand where he was coming from in his situation and his life, but that moment was actually kind of a a moment. It was like sticking an electric prod into my side yeah. when Mr. P said that, Ugh. you know, that his only hope would be to leave his, his tribal homeland and, you know, go out into the white world where, you know, people have more hope. And so that was kind of like a, a big topic of discussion in our classroom and, you know, and among my students, um, because, you know, for, for um, parts of my life were also, you know, I lived 45 minutes away from the settlement and went to a non-Native school where there were 12 minorities out of 1,200 students. And so it was, it felt like um, something that was strongly desired by me growing up to, you know, I would have given my right hand to be able to come to a school with other Native kids and to learn all of the things that they were learning at that point in time, like access to the language. And it must feel amazing to be part of offering that to children. Now, we are going to run out of time and we have so many more things to talk about. But I I do want to mention, of course, this is one of the most challenged or banned books in America. And one of the the reasons that, that keep coming up, there are complaints that there's masturbation in the book, which I think a lot of teenagers are familiar with, and that there are is drug abuse or alcohol abuse. There's poverty. There's trauma. There are a lot of really hard things that Arnold goes through. And those are the reasons that come up when people say that they don't want their children reading this book. And of course, there are probably far more complicated reasons or, or maybe simple reasons behind the fact that this book gets challenged again and again. But I would love in the last two minutes, so you each have about 45 seconds for you to tell me why you think people should read this book. And Christina, I'll let you go first. Well, as a professor of literature and looking at the history of all of the books that have been challenged over the years and the books that haven't, um, it's important for generating conversation. You know, again, I recognize that parents and communities have concerns about some of the content that's in there. But if you're not able to sit down with a book and have a conversation about things like masturbation, about substance abuse, about mental health challenges, about poverty, about these real aspects of our shared lives, how is it that young people, when they're actually facing them in the quote-unquote real world, how are they going to respond to that? I can only imagine Imagine, you know, again, uh, having a young person who has been sheltered by parents and family and community who want to control what they are experiencing, when they have their first experiences with some of those aspects of life, it is going to be so devastating to them in ways that I don't think people appreciate. So read this novel so that it can be an opportunity to have the conversations we need to have with one another in emotionally safe spaces like our families and our communities. Lance, in 30 seconds, why do you think people should read this book? Because it's a banned book. I think everybody should pick one of the books on the list of banned books from wherever and read it for themselves. I I don't like list the book, whether it was from the ancient times of the Catholics saying you couldn't read this one or that. We have 
freedom of speech, but more important, freedom of thought. So use your own mind, read this book, make it up, make uh, your own mind ab- about it. Don't let somebody tell you what to think about it. The other thing is that it really gets to, for all of us about who am I, where do I belong, where do I fit in, and who are my people. Um, those are the things I'd say to take away from it. And Leah? I would say as a social studies teacher, our history has largely been excluded, the history of Native people, um, the history of Black people, the history of LGBTQ people. Um, Many, many histories have been excluded. And we know that by the year 2040, every person in America will be a member of a minority group. So it's more important than ever for us to hear and really take in each other's histories and stories and everyday lives to better connect with other people and understand them and have empathy in order to build a truly democratic nation um, that is a place where any of our children can grow up and succeed. Leah Slick Driscoll, thank you so much. Thank you also to Christina Roberts and Lance Foster. We are out of time. We have been reading The Absolutely True Diary of a Part-Time Indian by Sherman Alexi. This episode was produced by Caitlin Troutman, technical support from Danny Gear, and books were provided for our readers by Prairie Lights Bookstore in Iowa City. This is the Talk of Iowa Book Club. I'm Charity Nebbe.